Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. We're doing something a little bit different this week, something that I'm going to try throughout this season of the podcast, and that is to do a Katie Plus One episode. I am so lucky. I know so many great people. They're interesting. They're fun to talk to. They're special to me. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to invite people to join me and be my little partner in crime on this podcast. So we're doing it today with my friend Kelly Rizzo. And hi, Kelly. Hi, Katie. I'm so honored to be A, your plus one and be your partner in crime. And for the first time, me being your partner in crime doesn't involve cocktails or cooking. That's true. That's true. Just talking. And I thought maybe we could Tell everyone listening, Kelly, how we know each other. And we actually haven't been friends for all that long. I mean, you're a new friend, which I think is so important. And that's something I love to do. You know that Girl Scout song? Make new friends, but <laughs> keep, keep the old. old. One is silver, silver and the other gold. gold. <laughs> I, now, it's a round, actually, but we're not going to subject well, our listeners to that. It has been a little over a year and a half that we've been friends we met right after my husband, Bob, passed away because you had reached out through a mutual friend because you had gone through that same loss about 20-something years yeah, earlier, gosh, 24 20, gosh, years it, earlier. Yes, exactly. You were about the same age that I was when this happened, so you know what it feels like to have gone through a loss at that time. And you reached out just kind of offering a friendly ear and a friendly hand, and you're like, I'm here if you want to talk. and. Of course, I, I took her up on that. I just remember thinking when I was reading about what happened to Bob, who I always really liked. Actually, I had a date with him once, as you know. I know. I, I really liked that. him. I found him <laughs> so cute and funny and amusing. And I did think we shared a pretty nice kiss in the foyer of my apartment. But <laughs> he always thought you were lovely. What he can I big, say? He, he was a big fan. He, <laughs> he adored you. Well, 
Not enough to call me again, but that's okay. That's okay well, because it all yeah. worked out. It all worked out. He found the love of his life with you. Oh, okay. And uh, I remember thinking, gosh, Kelly, I, I, I remember those, those strange, surreal days following Jay's death. I thought, I know a little bit what Kelly's feeling right now. I just, I'm just going to say, hey, if you need me, I'm here. We had dinner and... And we've just stayed in touch because I've also been very excited about your career and what's ahead for you and tried to tried to give you some advice in that department. So I'm just <laughs> well, thrilled. There's no better mentor to have <laughs> than you. Well, And I've been so grateful, A, for your friendship, B, for your guidance on the personal level, but then C, for your guidance and mentorship on the career side of things. And I'm just, I mean, when... Katie Couric calls you and says, hey, do you want to do an interview with me? You say yes. And especially when it's such a dear friend of mine as well, which well, I'm very excited about. That's one of the reasons I thought this would be uh, very good chemistry. And it was serendipitous that my guest today is someone who you know well. I always hate when people say that instead of who for a person. Mm -hmm. People make that mistake yes. a lot, by the way. Good and that about. is... John Stamos. Katie, if you and I went out instead of you and Bob, um, we'd probably still be dating. Uh, just <laughs> oh, live, quit it some more, wife, John. But, quit it some I mean, more. What was you Bob know, thinking? Out of me, Coulier, Saget, you could have started with me. Well, you didn't ask, John. And I think, <laughs> I don't think you were available at the time. Did Bob ask you out? Yeah, they went out on a date. He asked her out. Isn't that funny? Yeah, well, yeah I remember. And we talked about it. I think he was intimidated by you. Oh, please. He was not really good. I used to have to, to see or know him. Like, I would t tell him what to text and what to say and what to do on these dates. And I, God, I wish, maybe I should have gone back to my text and see, because I feel like I was talk. I was texting him. I said, don't blow it. X smarter on Katie. She's a very intelligent woman. She's not just beautiful. She's, you know, she you know, be careful, Bob. And, you know, he and, and uh, yeah, and you guys kissed, we right? We did. And as Kelly knows, he was a good kisser. <laughs> Oh, I know too. I mean, to be honest, there's three of us John, here that have kissed him, and you know, you guys uh, had a some cuddles that you've you've cuddled on camera uh, and yeah, off, probably. Yeah. And you guys mm -hmm. joke, you even joke in your book that you've shared a bed with him on multiple occasions. We were like an old married couple. We didn't have sex, and we argued all the time. <laughs> it was sort of a... That's funny, John. <laughs> That is <laughs> well, you know, I learned from Bob. Um, thank you for having me on this, and what a great idea! To, but isn't it called Katie Plus One? Like, don't you always have the name of the podcast is Next Question? And some conversations, honestly, John, lend themselves to sort of a, a single person doing an interview, and some are much better for when there's a connection or someone is passionate about a topic. So, this is really an experiment, and Kelly's my my first person to to do this with. And um, anyway, when I was going to be in L.A. visiting my daughter, and I know you both live in L.A., I thought, wow, this will be a great opportunity because I, I'm excited to talk to you about your book and your life. And I know what a big deal this is, John, because I wrote a memoir that came out, gosh, now about two years ago. I can't believe it. And it was a, it was a very stressful time because you do open up your heart and kind of spill your guts on the page. And it's scary, right? It was the last thing on my mind. I never thought of, about writing a book. It wasn't a goal of mine. I, I didn't think I could do it. Certainly in my juvenile thinking, I thought, well, 
all people would care about is, you know, talking about who I slept with. And I'm not going to say that because you know, not that many anyway, but it, you know, so I just, I'm never going to write a book and I'd never found my, I just didn't think it was something that I would ever do. And then, you know, I became a father and that, that kind of, you know, I was maybe, you know, people were asking, but I was, I don't know. Then, you know, then Bob died. And, um, I sat down to write that obituary type thing in, in the LA times and I just kind of just part poured out of me. And, um, and I think the agents saw that and they said, Oh, Hey, you should write a book. I'm like, no, yes, there was very good writing in that. And I still said no for a long time. And I just couldn't figure out, I didn't want to, I didn't think I could. And I didn't know how, I didn't know where to start. And then I remembered my mom's letters that she wrote me and she wrote these beautiful notes that, um, that I've, that we've kept over the years. And I kind of put them together. I said, okay, this is a good starting point. And, um, but then I wanted to write a love letter to all the people that have been so beautiful in my life. Certainly Bob. I mean, Bob is a through line through the whole, you know, I start with, I, I decided to write the, two, I don't know where you started in your book, but I started with the two hardest things that I could write about. One was this horrific day. I was going to meet Bob at the Palm and I got a DUI and, uh, you know, it was the lowest point in my life. And my five stages of grief then were, you know, sex and more booze and it was terrible. And then the second chapter that I wrote was the final one, the day I found out that Bob died and I sort of go through it pretty uh, meticulously, right, Kelly? And, and then my five stages of grief there were therapy and family and health and um, and then I just had to fill in the rest of it. But Bob was certainly, I don't know if I, I don't know. It was interesting. I was just thinking, I don't know if I would have wrote this. Cause a lot of times when I was writing about Bob, I was like, Ooh, what would he, if he was alive, would he, I don't think I would have written this book if, 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 uh, if he were, if he was still around. Wow. I mean, clearly I think a life event like that has such a, a profound impact and reminds you of your mortality and yeah, right, right. you know, you lost your husband. How how long? When was that? It was in 1998, believe it or not. So it has been, gosh, 25 years now, right? And what does that feel like? Is it like the more time that goes by, the less you feel, and and that feels shitty too, right? right? It does actually. But I mean, Kelly and I had a long conversation about that for for her podcast, and. You know, I always think if something were to happen to me, I wouldn't want the people I left behind. I'd want them to be sad for a little while. I'd want them to be very, very, <laughs> very sad. But I wouldn't mm -hmm. want that sadness to overcome them and be a through line through the rest of their lives um, as much right, as, right. you know, I'd want them to think about me. But you want you want people to be as joyful and feel good. You don't want people to to yeah, feel yeah. terrible. And Kelly's very much that attitude. I know Kelly struggled. Didn't you struggle with that, Kelly? Yeah. You started to feel sort of good and have a nice half a day, and then, then you felt guilty right, well, that and, Bob would be mad. He would be mad, but at this point... Well, that's what I'm saying, John. Like, you know better than anybody. I've had to differentiate between earthly Bob and heavenly Bob. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Bob, of course, would want me to be happy and would want me to enjoy life and, and to Maybe move forward. Maybe meet someone. And, right. And, but earthly Bob... Absolutely not. Earthly Bob would be like, how no yeah, dare yeah. you? How could you? You're smiling. Oh, so you didn't love me at all, right? I knew it. You know, like that's how Earthly Bob would be. And so you have to separate right, right. them, you know, and you know that better than anybody, John, like how he would have been if he could talk about his own death, but he never wanted to talk about it because he said he was going to live forever. Right. You called me yesterday crying. It was a, you know, I started crying. Um, 
But what you said was that, that the people that didn't know Bob, when they read your book, they'll, they'll know the real Bob. And that meant so much to me because <clears throat> I've just been struggling with uh, not having him around. And, and, uh, as, as I know you are, but, um, writing the book was, um, it was my way of get you know, talk, being close to him again. And, and hopefully, and, and I feel that phone call made me, cause I just wanted him to be proud of the, of the way I wrote about him. And, and, you know, you said he would be, so that was all I needed to hear. Not only would he be proud, I mean, I was just so touched and blown away by how you portrayed and depicted your relationship with him. Um, you said things about me in there that like I didn't even know or that I had forgotten. And there were so many um, parts of this book that, I mean, even myself as your friend, somebody who knows you very well, like I did, I didn't know. And, it, and it's such like what? Oh, my gosh. Just even stories, stories about Bob, because keep in mind, I had only heard Bob's perspective on a lot of things. And, <laughs> you know, and we'll get to this, but, you know, your relationship with him, even when you guys first started doing Full House together, I had, I knew that you guys weren't besties from day one, but, you know, I only heard Bob's side of the story. So it was very interesting to get your side of the story. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the two hardest, I thought that the writing the chapter about Bob or, or, or the opening chapter was going to be the hardest. The hardest chapter, two chapters really that I wrote were, were the full house ones because I didn't, you, you know, I, I, I know how important the show was to people and people ask, oh, Jeff Franklin was over here the other day and he's writing a book and he was asking me like, when did I come to terms with the fact that, you know, full house and when did I like it? When did I accept it? And the truth is not until really honestly to myself until I wrote this book, until I put down on paper what that show meant to people, how much it influenced life and how it was everybody's family. It wasn't just, you know, the latchkey kid coming home. It was her family and, and the, and the widow or who turns it up a little louder. It was his family. And, you know, the, uh, it's become, you know, the new normal unconventional uh, family. And the, and the central character on that show was love and it was representing the best of who we could be. And the critics used to just drive me nuts. And I finally just let all that go writing this book and said, this show wasn't meant for you guys. You're not smarter than me. I get it. It was fast at times. It was silly. It was big. It was about, but what you, what you missed is right under that. When you put, it gave you a chance to, the brain goes to the side and lets the heart feel. And that's what you intellectual dummies didn't get that I got and the rest of the world got too. So we weren't making it for you, but just digging at it, writing it down and then talking about the relationship with Bob. I mean, it did start off rough. I came from, you know, a sitcom with Jack Klugman, who was, you know, one of the great television actors and Gary Marshall was on that show and all these brilliant comics. And every scene that we approached was from story and character and why I would say this. And that's the way I went into Full House. Well, you know, Bob certainly didn't work that way. Bob, as, as Kelly could attest, was a laugh junkie. He was addicted to getting laughs. And if he couldn't get them from where, where he's, you know, in the show, he, it was like going down to Skid Row and getting them. He would make the crew, he would just go for the, the lowest, you know, not the crew, but the, the type of comedy to make them laugh. And it was, it was, um, intrusive to my process. So, and then, I, then just the, trying to figure out like, when did we click? And it really wasn't until his sister got scleroderma and Dave's sister, uh, had a terrible cancer. And then they found a brain tumor in my sister. So the three of us were not just sitcom guys that working together. We were three brothers uh, that were losing their sisters. And that's when we really, I think, connected. That must have been incredibly, gosh, I mean, obviously, I know Bob's story well about his sister, and I've gone to events for the Scleroderma Foundation, but for Dave, 
to have his sister sick and you, John, I know she was later diagnosed with MS and it didn't turn out to be a brain tumor after all. But to have those life and death situations, that must have been an incredibly bonding experience for the three of you. And it was that the moment everything changed? I think so. It, it, it sort of just said, what are we doing? Let's put aside our petty bullshit. Let's learn from each other. Let's all come a little closer to your process. You come to mine. And we did that. And you know what else was interesting, just thinking it through, is that my sister made it, like you said, and theirs didn't. So that that was a, I felt guilt about that too. It was strange. But we just continued to build our, our love for each other. And, you know, um, thinking about that last dinner, Kelly, I mean, Bob was, uh, it was just, you know, it was everything you wanted in a, in Bob that night. He was just at his, to me, and it was his best. And I, little things that normally bothered me about him didn't because I too was coming, you know, was starting to come around and be like, you know, not to be such an asshole. And, you know, it was, just, and then he wrote this beautiful thing and, and, you know, in Instagram. And you don't think of the last time you take a picture like that to be their last time with somebody. Set the scene for me, John and Kelly, you guys were on a double date. You were at Nobu in Malibu, right? And Kelly, do you remember that night being as magical as John does? I do. And but I'll, I'm going to backtrack even one more second, because, John, this is something that now literally this just popped in my head. You had said how he was at his best and you were at your best. But I'm thinking back to even maybe just like a month before that is when you guys remember you had that work trip, I think, to Florida mm-hmm. and you guys were bickering like the old married couple the whole time. I remember Bob came home yeah. and he's like, oh, we were driving each other nuts and John was mean to me and then I'm sure I was mean to him. And, you know, you guys were bickering, bickering, bickering. And then we had this dinner that was yes. the complete and total like resolution from that. And so there was none of that. You guys you know, I mean, I've been at many dinners with you guys where even you'll you'll bicker like the old married couple and you guys were just <laughs> having the best time. And we truly did have this wonderful, wonderful dinner that I'm so grateful that you put it into words and you documented that better than even my memory allowed. So I'm grateful that I had you as my like documentarian. So thank you for that and for kind of restating it so beautifully. Yeah, it was it was special. He was special. You know, look, I mean, um, it's uh, it's you don't think of losing someone like this like this so fast and so. But we've we've bummed everybody out. Yeah, well, you know what? I I I mean, I actually I think it's beautiful. We'll be back with more of John Stamos and my date for this podcast, Kelly Rizzo, right after this. If you want to get smarter every morning with a breakdown of the news and fascinating takes on health and wellness and pop culture, sign up for our daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, by going to katiecouric.com. Hey, everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. We're back with John Stamos, Kelly Rizzo, and moi. There is a lot more to you, John Stamos, than than Bob Saget, <laughs> and 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 the book is is really while Bob plays an important role and is the through line, as you said, it's really a love letter also to your family to growing up. So I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you grew up in Orange County in an extremely close knit family with your parents and your two sisters, one older, one younger. Can I say real fast? You are so. Great. I haven't seen you do this in a long time, you know, because uh, you're not on the morning shows. It's just hearing your voice, like you were saying, Kelly, like she's so iconic. She's so, you, you're so effing smart, but you're also cute and you have this, um, this likability about you and this smile and just to be, because I don't think we've done many interviews together to, to be interviewed by you like this. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just, oh, no, I'm, please, I'm having go a fan. On. How lucky am I to sit, go on, go on, to sit John. next to her? I'm just so, I feel so <laughs> okay, honored. And you, you look do. great. I mean, okay, you really don't, you. you don't age either. Thank you. Thank I, you. I, I say either because I'm talking to myself as well. <laughs> You look damn good. Can I just say, John Stamos, you look damn good. Big look at that. Can I just say, look at that head of hair. What is that? Well, I have this very large poster, but big. Like, I asked my assistant to get a little thing for the book, and it's it's like the whole wall. <laughs> I think it's fitting. <laughs> I think it, it's appropriate. It to you, anyway, yeah. sorry, I interrupted you. Getting back to you. my question. Right. Thank you for those nice things that you just said. But I I want you to describe your childhood because you know it's so fun to hear how people grew up and how their childhoods made them the people they became. I'm fascinated by that. More conversations are going on about, you know, how you're raised and trauma and all that stuff. And it sounds like you had a a pretty lovely childhood. Your dad owned a restaurant called The Yellow Basket, and you worked there as a teen, and you worshipped your dad. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. Yeah, he was my hero. He was, uh, he was you know, he was larger than life. And and I think when some kids, they reach the age where they go, eh, he's just a human. My dad was always a superhero to me. He was, till the day he died, he was the coolest mother brother. I mean, he, you know, I got one of the 
perks of doing what we do is we get to, you know, um, do great things is to meet people. And my dad loves Sinatra. And so I got to take him to a, a Sinatra concert. I didn't know Rickles at the time, but he was opening up and that was Frank. And uh, this is how cool my dad was. So we got a chance to go back and meet him. It took, it was hard to do. And they said, Mr. Sinatra wants to see you. You'll know. Like, uh, yeah. Smoke signal. There, okay. <laughs> and somebody, a little Tony O came during intermission. Mr. Sinatra wants to see you now. So we go back and we're taking pictures and everything. And it was time to take my dad, everybody to take a picture. And I was like, come on, dad, let's get a picture. Here's Sinatra. You love him. And he said, no, I'm good. I'm good. And just sat back and just, he liked, he, it was enough for him to see his son with Sinatra. And my mom, on the other hand, you know, Jilly Rizzo nearly, you know, killed her. She jumped on him and she was trying to kiss him. <laughs> but my dad was so fucking cool, man. He just stayed back. I was like, no, it's okay. He was a great man. And I, I got so much from him. But one of the things that I highlighted in the book was that the way he treated people, he, he, he treated his busboy the same way he, he would treat his best customer. And I think, um, and I worked on Sundays and I got, I, I got General Hospital during that time. And, uh, and, and I remember getting, like, when I got the role, I was in the casting office and I called, I said, I got to call home. And I called home and I, the phone answers and you could, and everybody was around the phone and said, uh, I got bad news. Uh, I got it. And they were screaming. And in the back, you can hear my dad go, make sure you don't work on Sundays. I need you on Sundays. <laughs> and, Sure enough, I auditioned. I got it the two days later. I shot it the day after that, and it aired two weeks later. And it was 35 million people a day, you know, seeing the show General Hospital. And I was, I would still have to go to work on Sunday to be my dad's Sunday guy, you know. And people finally start, people started coming in and recognizing me. I said, Dad, I'm famous. Can I quit? <laughs> but I think it took, I th and he came down and saw me on the set one day, and he saw the way that I handled people like he does, I think. And then he said, all right, enough of the restaurant. This is a real thing for you. Go. I love you, son. Be the best you can be and go. And he wasn't that old when he passed away. No. Yeah, he was 65. It was terrible. Um, but, and he wasn't, he was emotional enough. You know, how, you know, strong Greek dad he was, you know. My mom would say, I love you every other word. And he said, God damn it, Loretta, you're wearing it out. Just say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> he came to Yugoslavia when I was doing a movie in the 90s, and he, he came home and he wrote this beautiful letter and faxed it to me, um, and I read it then, whatever. So when he when he he had a, a stroke in the airport in Las Vegas, and was in a stroke, had a, was it um, he was uh, what's the word? I don't even think I'm getting choked up here. Um, uh, he was in a coma for six months, and, and he was at our house, and I knew he was going to die any day. And I was looking around in his closet and his drawers for something I could keep. He was a super humble guy. Drove the same car forever. I found a crappy old watch that didn't work, but I moved a shirt or something, and I saw "I love you, Dad." I was like, oh, my heart stopped. Like, what is this? And it was the original letter that he had faxed me in Yugoslavia. And I have it up there. And it, the way he laid it out was, you know, A, you know, being on the set, the way you handle people really made me proud. And B, my chest is 60 inches, you know, because of you. And C, he says, a man doesn't have many great moments, but you have given me many. I love you, Dad. Aww. That is... And now you have that framed in your office at home. Yeah. Yeah. I write a lot of notes to my kids. I don't know if you well, do. Well, no, but, but now, now I... I'm feeling like I should have written. My mom used to write, put little notes in my lunch bag and say things like, don't get stuck in your peanut butter sandwich. But, <laughs> but Or when she put a banana, that's no banana lady, that's my nose, Jimmy Durante. <laughs> but not, I mean, those I think were the only two notes she wrote me. But it's a very sweet thing. And I mean, I love how... I mean, obviously, I've heard wonderful stories about your mom, but the way she's depicted in your book, of course, is, I mean, she's an angel, she's a saint, and I love that these notes that she's written you, that you actually 
have in the book. They're like these little yeah. guideposts and signposts throughout each chapter. So how did you come up with that idea? Well, I was looking for a, a hook, I guess, to this book. Like, you know, and I remember telling the agents, like, I don't know, like, like that book, like uh, the art of not giving a fuck. Like, I need something like that, you know. And if you would have told me thing, a friend of mine said, hey, why don't you call it, if you would have told me, because I've, I've said that forever. He, a friend of mine, Neil, was over, and Mike Love was calling me, and I didn't answer it. And I said, if you would have told me when I was a kid, my first show I ever, concert I ever went to was the Beach Boys, and I wouldn't answer the phone when Mike Love called. So it was like, so then I started with that. And then the, the notes, I knew I had them, and I knew my sisters had some, so I gathered all those together and sort of laid them out. I was like, oh, this is kind of going along with, my, you know, in the, the first chapter, you know, when I was getting ready to get in my car you know, and go see Bob at the Palm and, you know, and I never made it. I looked at the wall, all those frame walls, and I have one of her notes framed and said, don't give the devil a ride. He'll end up doing the driving. And I'm like, oh, wow. wow. Okay, so that goes there. Wow. <laughs> you know. So she just did it all the time. Or when would she give you these notes? Would she put them under your pillow? How did it work? Sometimes they'd be on the pillow. Towards the end, when my d dad died and I was got divorced, and you know we were both in a, a rough place, and we needed each other. It was all close to being, you know, too much, but it was a, it was a definitely a needy relationship. I would go there, and she called her house the Castle of Comfort, and so there'd be notes saying "Welcome to the Castle of Comfort." But a lot of them, you know, I found in like birthday cards. It's like this, some of the stuff she said in these birthday cards were like, "Wow," you know, like "Thank God gave you to me and dad." You and me and your dad and my wife, you know, and, and I found one too. I don't know if it's in there. I think so. Yeah. It was like, I was the only person that shared a heartbeat with her. Like, where did she get that from? But that's, I never thought about that, but you know, that's true. That's beautiful. It is. I write sometimes, Caitlin and I both wrote Billy a, a letter when he was born and we put it in the safe. But what I do is I, I set up an email account for him. So I'll email him once a week, once a month or whatever. And it's easier just to kind of talk into the phone and email. And then um, someday I guess I'll, I'll write him out. But he's probably got already a couple hundred, you know, letters from me uh, waiting for him. That's so cool. You know, I had wanted to do that. You know, the best laid plans of mice and men. I had yeah. wanted to write my daughters a letter every year to say, this is what happened this year. You know, this is what you did. These were some of the moments we had. And John, do you think I did it? <laughs> of course not. Well, it's a great idea. They're 32 and 28 now. So I, I would like to write them one letter just, you know, you my should. book, but my book was kind of my letter to my girls, right, 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 you right, know, that's right, that's right. and they, I kind of put it all out and, my life lessons are, and that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to write my book. I wanted right. to record something, not necessarily for strangers, but for my daughters, you know, that would memorialize my life. And I think this yeah, is, legacy, this yeah. is something great for your son, you know? Yeah, I think so. It, you know, he's a little shit today. <laughs> uh, he he slept with us. He slept with me. Caitlin was gone for a couple of nights, so he crawled into bed with me. And it was yesterday, and, and I wake up, and his like, you know, his little face is right up next to my nose, right next. And uh, is it dad? I go, yeah. He goes, you smell like the bathroom at my school. Well, thank you, son. Thanks, Billy. <laughs> Thank you, Billy. Um, well, he's so funny, and he and his humor is a lot closer to, to Bob's than mine. And that's you know sometimes I really get bummed out when I that Bob doesn't because he just he said so, uh, Dad when you, if you have to pee and you hold it longer uh, the pee nest goes away or something like that. So that's something Uncle Bob would have talked about. 
That is I very walked, um, close to a Bob joke that we know about. <laughs> yeah, he right. likes potty humor. I walked, I walked by and uh, not a couple months, a couple weeks after Bob passed away, and, and he was uh, the nanny was showing him Full House, and most of the time he watches it just to get enough ammo to make fun of, you know, to goof on me and a little sort. Like Billy, go clean up your toys. You got it, dude. You know? But <laughs> no <laughs> this particular show was. He uh, 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 he's five and a half. I think it was the Beach Boys, and he. It was this this scene where uh, where uh, Danny was telling Uncle Jesse he wishes that his life, rock and roll, are cool, and Jesse was saying, "I wish I had your life, the family and stuff." And in truth, it was it was the real us. It wasn't the characters, and I just lost it. And I was kind of he could see me out of, out of the side of the peripheral, and and you know, in a moment of coolness that that I don't, haven't maybe haven't seen since, he let me have that moment, and I was you know I was just choked up and. And I, and he looked at me and I, and I just kind of walked away. But so sometimes, uh, he can be cool. He's, is, he's the light of my he's life. He's so just, cute. Yeah. He's so cute. He's like a little mini John. He's a handsome kid. I stalk you guys on Instagram. It's so, it's so <laughs> weird, right? I try to teach him because now it's like he, a lot of people do, oh, you're cute. You're trying and I said, no, you're not. You know, I got to figure out how yeah, to Yeah, you don't want him, it to get to his know, head, right? Him, he... Well, also, you have to praise different things. You have to praise his grit, the fact that yes, he yes, doesn't yes, give yes. up, that he try, the, the fact that he's kind to other people. Yes. Yeah, it, that's so important because especially for girls, like I used to say, if somebody said to my girls, oh, you're pretty, and I'd say, but they're very smart, actually. They're they're smarter than they are. Yeah, pretty. yeah, yeah. I tell them that. Just this morning, I said, people, you want people to like you because you're smart and you're kind and you're compassionate, which he is. Yeah. Uh, that's what, you know. But he's a little, and I wasn't like this as a kid. I guess Caitlin was a flirt or whatever. He, he's got girls around. Remember Kelly at my birthday party a couple of weeks ago? Like Bella and Stella oh and, and, and Isabella. and, Bella and, and uh, Isabella. It's, it's too much. We were, we were in D- Disney in Paris and this, I swear this out. So he, it was two days. And the first day we had a guide, an older French woman, very nice, but maybe in her fifties or sixties. And you know, Billy was like, anyway. the next day, this beautiful 30 year old French woman shows up. Hello. And Billy's like, boom. <laughs> and he, 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 here's his move, he, he, which I can't use because I'm married, but he's like, uh, so what's my favorite color? Stop. So what kind of, uh, what's my favorite animal? Huh? Uh, like he's quizzing them on his stuff. So, and then I kind of overhear him talking about his girlfriend, Bella. He's got my girlfriend, Bella, and she lives in the neighborhood and she's really nice and smart. And then the um, lady goes, oh, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. And she walks away. As soon, I swear to God, as soon as she's out of earshot, he goes to me and goes, why did I tell her I had a girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like he had a shot He's already it. a player. Yeah. That is so funny. Don't like it. Don't like it. Wait, so speaking of Disney, so obviously I know you as the biggest Disney freak of anyone I've ever met in my life. Like, I didn't know, like, Disney file was a thing until I met you. But in your book, you talk about, like, the origins of it, which was so interesting to me because I never really knew where it came from. Growing up next to Disney, yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about childhood. My childhood was. It was, it couldn't have gone better. And I think a lot of people, kids, would go to Disneyland to escape whatever they were dealing with at home. And I... It was the opposite for me. I just loved it. But it was also, once you walk through those gates, the artistry and, the, you know, the way that, that these brilliant Imagineers want you to feel each land. So I really got attracted to that. And it was a place, that's sort of where I reached puberty there. It was a place to, you know, try to pick up, try to pick up girls. I never really quite got it. It was kind of your, like, your mall growing up, maybe. Yeah, yeah, right, right, yes. 
Um, and so, yeah, I'd be standing in line there with my dad's members only jacket and zits and hair feathered. <laughs> members and, like, only. God, that brings and, back memories. Right? <laughs> my dad still wears yeah, his members only jacket. Yeah, the chicks didn't like that, I, I realized. In the um, but Kelly, we all went. We had a great, um, remember we all, the yeah, for six of us, birthday. Dave and his wife, Melissa, and we all wore onesies. Um, remember? Yeah, Bob was not happy because yeah. it didn't quite fit him. He was, him. didn't like his onesie. <laughs> he couldn't quite zip it, and he was very unhappy that we forced him to wear the onesie. <laughs> but you proposed to your wife at Disney World or Land, I guess, Disneyland out here, Disney World in Orlando. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I had a choice. I was done with Disney until I met her, and then she fucked me back in again. One of the things you write about, John, is that you wanted to be famous from the beginning. I mean, why? What did you mm-hmm. see that sparked that in you that said, I want to be a household name or I want it, I want people to know me? <laughs> yeah, I do say that a lot. And it, and it is true, but in, um, in, in, in closer look that it was really about being liked because I, you know, I was bu- before the bullying was even a term. Some jackass gave me a black eye because his girlfriend wanted to go out with me. And, you know, that was so humiliating. And um, I wasn't you know, I was a dorky kid. I like puppets and magic and nothing cool about any of it. And girls, I put a picture in the book of me with a puppet trying to impress some girl. And she's like, mm. and then, you know, the next picture you see me on drums. Like I got to But so I think it was more of just wanting to be liked. But I did, you know, I, the, the, being famous was something that I wanted first. And then, then I learned, oh, acting, oh, acting. Okay, I'll learn that. Um, but, uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, you know, it was, you know, I, maybe, did you find this writing your book that I really discovered my story as I was writing it? Like, again, like I didn't think it's your life. So you go, eh, it's okay. It's, I'm mean, not do that. Play with the beach. But as you, when you write it all down, there's a lot. Yeah. And I was always sort of trying to find the relatable, you know, places and certainly, being a dorky kid and being bullied, you know, was one and being cheated on, you know, I think, you know, people probably think, oh, he, he's never going to get cheated on. Look at him. You know, you know I, I, my wife cheated on me because I have no money. I'm not good. Like, no, 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 no. It, it, it's people are assholes. That's why you got cheated on. Not, but so I was trying to find as many relatable moments throughout the book. Um, and they kind of came, but what I was going to ask you was, did you find like, as I was discovering my story, I, I, I realized so many things that that happened back then that, that I get now. I was It was in the middle of a lot of cultural, being on General Hospital and, and the, the storylines between the, the black actors and the white actors was so different and they had to get their hair done in another place. And look back and say, wait a minute, that's segregation. You know, now, uh, or, you know, we're dealing with homophobia in the theater, um, inequality in the workplace for women. My dad, it was so great to write about my dad. He never held, my mom wanted to be a housewife and she was great and my dad never never held that over. He never said, I'm the one who make the money. You don't. In fact, he thought her and praised her for her job was, was harder and more important. And, and it was. Those are the examples that I had. But looking back at all those, you know, those kind of tentpole moments of my life, interesting. It is interesting. I think also, if you look back, how much things have changed, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm older than you are, John, I think by six years, but you're well, how old are you? I'm 66. Yeah. So kind of the same, the same generation. And, you know, you think about like when we were little, nobody was out if they were gay. I mean, it was a very closeted world. So much homophobia. You think about, you know, there was if there wasn't segregation, obviously, there was de facto segregation with the black part of town where I grew up and women, obviously, the role of women and the aspirations you could have as a young woman. My mom was a housewife as well. And my dad never 
you know, lauded that over her, but she just didn't have that many choices. You know, there weren't that many opportunities for for my mom to have a life outside the home in a very tangible way. So sometimes when I was writing my book, I would be like, wow, we have really evolved as a culture. Obviously, we have a long way to go. It's not like we've eradicated sexism or racism or all the isms that haunt us as a society. But but the progress that has been made, it is the changes in attitudes. It's pretty, some, you know, it's something to behold. Yeah. And I think, you know, yeah, exactly. And I, I think about a lot about, you know, some of the sexual endeavors that I went through in my life that, you know, you think of them as um, back then it was like, oh, every school boy's dream. You know, I, I walked into my dressing room, there was a naked girl in the closet and, 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 and this penthouse pet came in and had sex with me. And, my, and I, you know, I, I'm happy to say that they were not what I thought it was going to be. I didn't feel good after. I didn't like it. I, I wanted love. I wanted like my family. But yeah, so I found those things. We certainly this Me Too movement has been so incredible because it just it really women have really done a brilliant job at making us men, you know, straighten up and look at you know look at the way that they've been treated over the years. Uh, so a lot of that. But then you look at some, then we you know with racism and some of this stuff. Like, have we not got past this yet? Come on, there was so much of it. I guess tamped down we thought okay we're we're moving forward we're and now it's bubbling up again and so but i think we're having the kind of conversations about it john that we never did when we mm-hmm. were younger mm-hmm. i think it was right. just sort of part of our lives and i remember when i did my my daytime talk show which i renamed my stupid daytime talk show even though there were some good episodes but i remember thinking well it wasn't it's just I, 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 that's a longer story. Read my book. But it's just that I never got to, it, the, the kind of things that I really wanted to explore was not necessarily right. perfect for what a daytime audience was looking for. And nowadays sort of, you would do, you would say, fuck you, this is the way I want to do my show. And here's what I'm talking about. Well, I did and it was canceled. But anyway. Well, okay, good though. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, I did. And it, but, but I remember wanting to do a story, a, an episode or a show on race. And I remember, like, nobody, we, we couldn't figure out how to address it or how to attack it because it just wasn't part of the, the national conversation back then. So in a way, we've had so many growing pains talking about systemic racism and, and even sexism, but at least they're being talked about, yeah. if not solved, right? Yeah, then there's some cul- culpability. There's some people that are having to... Uh, you know, it's interesting. They didn't. The publisher kept saying, "Where's Lori? We want to talk about the, uh, you know, the, the college scandal. You got to write about that." I said, "No, I don't." And I talked to Lori about it. She says, "Yeah, go ahead. We're trying to say anything you want. You can defend me." I said, Are "You sure? Yeah." And I sort of wrote it out. I said, "No, this is not. I didn't like it." And then so it was what nothing there. And then I said, "It does feel like there's something missing." And I went back and I just wrote about, from my point of view, the way she went through it. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. Big and small. And by the way, like the last person you'd think on Full House that would go to jail. The first would be me, probably Jody or, or both of us together. Um, but the way she, you know, it was a study in resilience and the way she got up every day and, def, you know, took care of her family and, and took care of her marriage. I mean, I would have crumbled way before she did. So that was interesting to be able to just write about her and have that conversation, uh, not picking sides. She is so strong. Just her attitude and outlook on everything you know, for what she went through to 
just have such a positive, just a smile on her face and a positive outlook on things. It's it's really remarkable. That must have been mortifying and horrifying for her to go through. And people, I mean, I'm not saying what she did was right, but people are so cruel and so righteous and judgmental. Um, that must have been really hard. The mud that was slung at her kids daily, too, you know, and her family. But she, you know, yeah, I mean, it was the way that she handled it. And she she was accountable. She did everything she was supposed to do, go to jail, do this, you know, and, and, and a lot of people don't know that during that time she was going and helping kids in schools and, you know, underprivileged kids and, and um, uh, bringing food to, anyway, she's a saint and she, the, you know, she made a big mistake. In typical Lori fashion, when she got out of jail, she said, how was it? She goes, oh, it wasn't bad. I met some, I met a re- couple of really nice ladies. We're, we, we, we're, we're in our book club now. And we was just like, okay, yeah. Lori. She said she took the time to get to know everyone there and learn their stories. And they all had a lot of difficult stories. And she really wanted to understand, like, what brings people to that place, you know? She's never really done an interview, has she? No, no. You should get her on. Well, maybe she, she would talk to Lori. me about it. Anyway, yeah. John, I wanted to ask you just a few more things about the book. And one is your obsession or lifelong love, I should say, of music. And you included a Nietzsche quote in your yearbook, without music, life would be a mistake. Yeah. My dad thought it was so stupid. He goes, he that's did? the dumbest thing I ever heard. Really, Dad? Well, uh-huh. uh, look who I'm playing with today. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's talk about your music and how you fell in love with music and the whole process of that. I was, uh, drumming is, was my main thing. Um, and by the way, if you can, uh, let's see, can you see? Kelly was kind enough to give me Bob's guitar. That's the black one in the middle. See that? And uh, I don't play it because if I picked it up and started playing, it'd be like, my dog lick my balls. Fuck, 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 yeah. fuck, you know. So I, I try not to pick it up. But not to digress. And I'll, go, I'll get back. To, you need to, we need to, Kelly, there's one recording of this song before Bob died and he was working it into his act. And it's about, uh, I just saw it the other day. He sings a song about falling in love with her, her dad. It's about my dad. It's called I'm Not in Love with My Wife's Father. Yeah. And it's about my dad and it's hilarious. And there's yeah. only one because he never recorded it. And he never, it was going to be in his new special. And so he didn't want anyone else to record it because he didn't want it getting out there because it's supposed to be a surprise in the special. And so I recorded it at his, one of his last shows ever in Denver. And I have a video of it. And at some point I need to release it. And John had, you know, a good idea for maybe how we should release that one day. But maybe you could do it and raise money for scleroderma or something. What was the idea to play it right now on Katie's uh, podcast? <laughs> no, no, no. I wish it, I, I was thinking, of course, you, you know, I like the way you think John Stamos. But then I was thinking, oh, no, Kelly's way too smart for that. Well, it's got to be debuted somewhere. I don't know. Well, no, it, she had a good idea. It could be to raise money for the SRF. By the way, this is a. Uh, um, this is the bracelet that we put out to raise money for Bob's charity and Kelly's charity. Um, and it's the biggest selling bracelet. It's, uh, we have a, a thing called St. Amos and you can buy a bracelet. Um, this, this is one for Bob. I know. And, I uh, love that you guys did that. Thank and you wait, so much. And wait, what does it go for? Is that for scleroderma or something else? Yeah. Well, it's their charity, like in conjunction with the SRF, which is really, really nice. And what is your charity, so, John? So, so thoughtful. Well, I, I've devoted about the last 30, 35 years to, to abuse children and, and to, you know, to stop that, which it's, you know, it's been on the rise since the, the pandemic. And, um, I, you know, I talk a little bit about it in the book, um, you know, something that happened to me. Um, I felt sort of like a, 
charlatan not talking about um you know i had, I had a uh, incident with a babysitter when i was uh, about 12 or so and it was uh, I, I stuffed it away uh, it, and um i uh I, I came back when i was writing a speech to, for um, um an event that they were giving me an award to, for the childhood and um i said you know what now's not the time i'm gonna pack this away and then it when i was writing the book i was just like did i like did i work did I put everything in here that I will? Oh, wait a minute. What about that? And I talked to my sisters and I talked to Kate then, and, and it's very brief, but I, but you know, it was important to me to talk about it. It's a very, you know, uncomfortable situation with a babysitter. And, um, you know, the, the, I think that, I think the, um, um, the rate is like seven out of every 25, uh, girls have been, you know, sexually abused and, and, only four or something out of every 25 men, boys. But that's because boys don't talk about it. So I felt it was sort of important to, to, to tell my my incident there. The numbers are really amazing, aren't they, when you think about it, how prevalent yeah. it is. And, yeah. uh, you know, what a hidden, dark secret is for so many so many people and how, how much it shapes them going forward with their view of themselves and the way they look at others and relationships and all that. Yeah, that's why I thought it was important. And I we have a one eight hundred number one eight hundred four a child, and that's one of the reasons why I mentioned the book too, so I could talk about that. Because if you you know if you if you feel like there's abuse going on, you can call. The other thing is like we talk to if if, if you're a parent and you're stressed and thing and you're thinking about getting angry at your kids, you can call that number too. So that was important. We'll be back with more of John Stamos and Kelly Rizzo, my plus one, right after this. Hey, everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity 
and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. We're back with Kelly Rizzo and John Stamos. Let's go back to music because I feel like you didn't really tell me about that. Because you write, without music, life would be a mistake. That's a Nietzsche quote. My dad thought it was stupid. I don't think he knew how important music was to me. Of course, he didn't think it was so stupid when I went on to play drums with the Beach Boys, John Fogarty and Bruce Springsteen, B.B. King, Willie Nelson, Little Richard, America. God, remember America? I loved America. Tom Jones and many more greats over the years. That's so cool. Yeah, well, I've, uh, yeah, I've been blessed to... I'm a good, I'm a decent drummer. I'm not a, I'm a terrible singer. And a melody was always sort of escaped. I love hearing it, but I can't play. So I played drums. It was my identity, you know, even before wanting to be an actor. I didn't really act in school and I didn't really, I wasn't in any of the plays and I wasn't a good singer. But finding something early, and, and I, I encourage any parent to steer the kid towards something that they help find their identity. And that's how I was in high, junior high school and high school. I was, I was a music, I was a drummer. I was in the marching band and jazz band. I just loved it. I just loved it. And the first time I heard the uh, Beach Boys song at Disneyland, I was across the park at the Matterhorn and I heard Sloop John B and it pulled me over like a, like, you know, like a Pied Piper, you know, and, and I pulled up, I got to the stage and they were singing this acapella part of Sloop John B. I was like, Oh my God, what is it? What is that? You know, it was, it was I called the Beach Boys music heart music. You don't have to think about it. But, and so I just set off and, and being, uh, the acting cut sort of took off first. I always wanted to play drums on TV when I was on General Hospital, there was a, I was asked, hey, can I play drums? They're like, we're not taking requests, kid, you know, relax. <laughs> and then one day I said to my dad, oh, dad, this guy named Sammy Jr. something's on the show. What are, he's like, Sammy Davis Jr.? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, he's a legend. And that started my love for the Rat Pack and my dad saying, gotta listen to Sinatra, Dean Martin, or Sammy. So I said, what do I talk to him about? He said, well, he's a drummer. Talk to him about playing drums, maybe. So the the scene was that that Sammy was playing a, a character, and I I was the host of the talent show at the waterfront. We were raising money for the street kids and stuff. And I I was with I was standing next to him. I said, Mr. Davis, they won't let me play drums on the drum. And he said, and I talked to him about music, and I had a real conversation about it. And um, <clears throat> I do impressions. This yeah, do it, no, do, no. do Sammy Davis Jr. Start it off. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, keep going. So, so he, so I talked to him about music and he said, okay, man, hold on, man. And he goes over to, uh, somewhere to talk to the producers and he comes back and says, just do what I say, man. I go, what? And I remember him being very firm and just do what I say in the scene. I go, okay. So I, I introduce him as the character and he comes out and then he goes, uh, Blackie, you play drums, right? I'm like, and it completely ad-libbed and you can, it's on YouTube. I'm like, yeah, let's come up here. Because the best way to start the show since I'm an opening act is with a little jazz. Oh, oh, Come on, I'm set. We're gonna do a little thing here together. That's it. And he plays. There was a drum. There was a, a band set up, and he's playing piano, and I'm playing drums. And you want two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And you could see this 
the sage like passing on to the young man like you you got you're one of us you're a musician you get it and it was the most beautiful and we just kept playing they didn't stop us they didn't dare stop us and i heard later that everybody in new york and la and they were all everyone was walking towards the monitors like you know like oh my god what's happening there and he and it ended and he gave me this big hug and it was just you know it was i'd been playing music on tv ever since thanks to him what a great story what a great story and now you and mike love and the beach boys are like bffs right the Beach Boys, uh, I was obsessed with the Beach Boys as a kid. Uh, I was obsessed with them. And I, it was the first concert I ever went to at the Universal Amphitheater, you know, before it had the roof on it. And um, I just never imagined that one day I'd be uh, with them. I, um, one of the first times I played with them was in, they would do these concerts, you know, for, at the 4th of July. And, and uh, they did the, a few shows. And then James Watts said, they're attracting the wrong people. They're not America's band, blah, blah, blah. And they banned them and brought... Oh, the, the, the interior secretary? Yeah, yeah, that jackass. And and they uh, got uh, um, Wayne Newton instead. And said, Don Cachet, you know. And um, uh, Nancy Reagan said, no, I'm more of a, a, you know, she was more of a surfer girl than a Don Cachet gal. And so we could... They, they got rid of him and then brought the Beach Boys back. And that's when I did it with them. In the afternoon, it was uh, in Philadelphia for a million people. And they were Bob's from. And then D.C. for 750,000 people. That was one of the first times I played with them. Wow. Are you worried about anything in this book, John? I mean, you talk about your marriage to Rebecca Romaine that was challenging and difficult. And I always thought, wow, two people in the same profession must be a very fraught situation, right? And it turned out to be for you all. Yeah, I don't know if it was because, I mean, she, yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. That, again, that was a discovery that I made, like, the, and you know what? You're the first person to ask me about that, this. Um, they were saying, well, you have to write about that. I said, no, I don't, but I guess I did. And what I came to discover, well, you know, all these years, I was like, she's a terrible person, and she did this, and she did that, blah, blah, blah. And in, in rehab, when I was doing the 12 steps, the fourth step is to write down all your resentments, and she did that, you know, was, I was I had a field day with that, and the, you know, the guy says, eh, you done? And I said, no, give me another pen, and I'm writing all this stuff. And he said, now, what part did you play in that? I said, what? I don't pay it. Well, even if it was 1%. And I started writing that down, and I realized I had more to do with the demise of our marriage than I was willing to admit all these years. And at that moment, I just learned to forgive and, and, and let it go. But it, so that was the only way I really was going to write about the, you know, what happened in the book that, you know, that, it, that she was, it just didn't work out. No good guys, no bad guys. You know, it's just the way it is. But, you know, I think writing a book, you have to be honest about your flaws. And sometimes that's kind of embarrassing, you know, but you, you know, you have to say where you fell short and what you wish you had done differently. I mean, it's a it's a very sometimes painful look at your life. Obviously, there are a lot of incredibly wonderful things that happen, but you have to reassess some of the things that you did and and own it. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the you know, what's the point? I did start out like to write a hero story. I did this. And then I was like, no, 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 no. And then it became a human story. Well, you said you wanted it to be relatable. And that's how you can be relatable is when you're human and you're showing, you know, as you said, like how you fell short. And, you know, if you're the hero story, it's not going to be as relatable to people. Right. Before we go, Kelly, obviously, I think for you, from what I understand, reading about Bob and reading what John wrote about Bob and what he meant to him. I mean, that must have been an incredible 
experience for you, both one of of pain, but also one of great memories. And when you called John after you read the part about Bob, what did you say? Yeah, well, I wanted John to know in case we didn't have as much time to discuss it today, like just to hear from me how much it meant to me, not only as Bob's wife and as John's friend, but also just as somebody in the public who's going to read this, how they're going to see Bob and see how he was portrayed as a person, as a friend, as, I mean, because, you know, you write about even parts of our relationship uh, or mine and Bob's, you know, as, as a husband, as a friend, as a, as a brother, which you had said that you guys had always both, you wanted brothers. And so you guys finally did become that to each other after, you know, wasn't right away, took a few years. Um, but I told you yesterday when I called you in tears um, that it just meant so much to me that you told his story so beautifully and about just who he was and how people reading this are just going to get such an incredible picture of who he truly was as a person, but also the memory that you have of so many of these instances were so detailed. And it was also so great to get it from your perspective, because as I said, I had really only heard Bob's perspective and you just did such a beautiful, wonderful tribute to him. And he would be so proud. I know his girls are going to be so proud. I'm so proud. And you should just be so proud. Thank you. That means the world to me. I was really, uh, you know, I didn't know what, I didn't know. I, I, I was really, but thank you. I appreciate that. I, mean. I was telling Kelly, I lost a good friend recently and I am going to carry her in my heart and try to be more like her moving on. And I'm just curious if you, if there's anything about you that changed after losing Bob. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, Kelly can attest that his whole thing, was, he never left anything on the table. He always said, I love you. I care about you, you know. And tomorrow is never promised. And Bob lived his life that way, right? And he went out. I remember talking to him. Jamie Lee Curtis, she wrote the thing in the front. I remember telling Jamie, like, he was so alive. And she said, yeah. And like, wouldn't you rather die alive and vibrant than some old, you know, Curmudgeon on the couch, you know, that, that didn't, you know, fulfill his dreams. And Kelly can attest too. He was, he, he had a n- new thing about him. He felt like a teenager again. He was doing new stuff. And he played that last night, that last show he played was like a two hour show, right? I mean, he just, and, and, you know, I, I just wrote about just picturing him going, you know, on his way home, he called Kelly and said he had a great show and he had a, a picture and, and he wanted her to fix it up. And she said, you you look handsome, but I don't need to fix anything there. And, and he, and it was True. beautiful. And he just loved you so much, Kelly. And, and, um, and he, I, I just pictured him going to bed, thinking about all of us, all the people that he loves, that he would see us again. And the, the laughter didn't have time to die down. And he left us, but um, I just, uh, that's the way I, that's my, what, what I hope he felt when he fell asleep and didn't wake up. Well, if I could just uh, share one thing, sorry, I just, I love you, John. Anyway, um, that really got me, that made me like start bawling. This is why I called you yesterday, because there was one quote from from it that, you know, for people listening to this, that... It was such an incredible, like, 
personal little exchange that just shows how well you knew Bob too. And it's just kind of explain this, like ever, all three of our like relationship. But um, you said, I knew from the start that she really loved Bob for Bob the way we all did. She listened to him rattle on about himself for a bit longer than I usually would. The first time she said to him, this isn't all about you, Bob. I knew she was the one. He'd pout, she'd kiss him, and in a sweet tone, she'd say, you know I love you, honey. As we hug in the driveway, I tell her, you got ripped off. You didn't have him long enough. And, you know, and I've said before that that's one of those things that it's so understandable why people think that because, you know, we'd only been, we'd only had three and a half years of being married, but, and I'm sure you feel this now too, that it's just, there's so much of an overwhelming feeling of gratitude that we did have him at all versus feeling we didn't have him longer. So that's true. We're all better off because of him. And, um, you know, we have to really take his thing, uh, and just live each moment for the most we can and be loving. And as you said, leave nothing unsaid. Maybe that's a good lesson from Bob. You know, tell people in your life regularly what they mean to you. Amen. And you both mean so much to me. Oh, thanks, John. (laughs) By the way, when I Instagram stalk you, you are beloved. I mean, everyone loves you, John Stamos. What is that supposed to mean? I'm. You're very (laughs) popular. Like when it was your birthday, all the notes and the comments, I was like, Good Lord, this guy is is very well loved, and I I, I meant it as a compliment, not as a diss. And well no, deserved. No, I appreciate it. I, but uh, yeah, okay, thank you. I mean, how, you know, but I think that's another reason to write a book, and I'm sure you felt this too. It's like it, it, the book is not like an Instagram post and a blip here and a blip there and here. Look what I'm doing here. Look, you know, it's a deep deep dive, right? Um, but uh, but thank you, Katie. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to start listening to your book tonight. Really? Okay. Did you enjoy the, the audio part? That was my favorite part. It was the hardest, but I really loved doing the audio. It was hard, honestly. And it was during the pandemic. So this makeshift studio I put together in a bedroom, I had like blankets. It was like a fort right, right, you, right. we'd build as a kid with pillows and blankets and fun. under, you know, this yeah. huge mess of stuff because we didn't have a recording studio to do it in. And it was exhausting. I have to say it was exhausting, yeah, yeah. but it was worth it because I think to have you narrating your own book, telling your own story, I can't imagine getting someone else to read your words. And by the way, you're a very good writer, John. Well, thank you. Um, it, yeah, it was the hardest. They said, oh, you can get it done in five or six days. I took like 32 days or something because <laughs> you would it would just start. First of all, you're cold reading your life and that's weird and you could change things and that didn't sound right. And um, it was very emotional. I would just go, you know, after a couple hours, I'd be like, I got to go. That's too much. Yeah. You got to pace yourself. But I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad to talk to you guys today about this. Yeah. And I'm excited to hear your audio as well. Well, thank you for, for doing this, John. Kelly, thank you for doing oh it. This thank was you so for fun. Having me. And what I an think honor. Kelly added such an important dimension. And it was really nice for me to witness your friendship and how much you love each other and mean to each other. And the fact that you tell each other that and leave nothing unsaid. I do. I appreciate you guys. I love you, brother. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have a question for me, a subject you want us to cover, or you want to share your thoughts about how you navigate this crazy world, reach out. You can leave a short message at 609-512-5505, or you can send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. 
Next Question is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. Our supervising producer is Ryan Marks. And our producers are Adriana Fazio and Meredith Barnes. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to the description in the podcast app or visit us at katiecouric.com. You can also find me on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.